Welcome to the Dialogue by Wirepoints, connecting the dots between our economy, government, and people. And now your hosts, Ted Dabrowski and Mark Glennon. Hello and welcome to the Dialogue Wirepoints podcast. And I'm Ted Dabrowski and I'm with my colleague, Mark Glennon. And today we're going to cover, I think, four key things. Uh, there's a new poll on the elections coming up, the gubernatorial primary elections coming up in, in June 28th. So we're going to cover that, some interesting poll and what it means. Um, two, we're going to cover some out-migration numbers. Uh, we, we've done a deeper dive in wire points as to what it means, certainly uh, in terms of what incomes have fled Illinois and what that means for the state's budget. Uh, number three, we're going to hit the Lake Michigan water levels and how that leads to many different climate explanations. Uh, and last, we'll cover a little bit of what's happening in California as elections there and recalls there are sending a, a big message to those soft on crime. So um, let's get started with with the uh, number one, the, the elections coming up here. We've got uh, six candidates that are running for for uh, the, the Republican nomination June 28th. And there was a poll done, a poll done that kind of flips a few things on its head and uh changes the whole dynamics, or at least gives, gives a different perspective on what the dynamics really are. Uh, Mark, you want to take us and get us started on that? Well, the, the, the big headline news, of course, is that um, Irvin, the uh, assumed front runner who spent a lot of money on this, is not the front runner, um, that uh, Bailey from Southern Illinois is. And the numbers are striking. Uh, we've got uh 32% of the respondents said they would vote for Bailey, uh, 17% for Irvin. Uh, uh, Jesse uh, Sullivan is, is third, I believe, back at 10 points still. So Bailey is clearly the front runner now. And, uh, you know, that comes as a surprise. He's a hardcore conservative. He comes from downstate, doesn't sound like a Chicagoan or uh, like anybody that uh, – is where the population center. However, uh, the he is leading everywhere by significant degrees, except in the city of Chicago. Uh, he's leading among suburban Cook County suburbanites, and in all the collar, collar counties. Um, should be noted that this poll came from a reputable polling shop, although they did not poll likely voters. It's too early to do that. This is a poll of. Republican voters. Uh, we expect that there's going to be a lot of independents voting in the Republican primary. So you could take this with a grain of salt, but boy, these margins are big ones. And, uh, you know, Ted, we don't normally get into the politics of it. We stick to policy, but it also provides us with a, a nice outline of the issues that are important uh, to people. And it's been widely assumed, of course, that crime is the big one. That's why everybody's talking about it, and it has been. But now, uh, it's it, it's uh, uh, the economy by a wide margin, by three to one. People list the economy as the as the bigger issue to them. Um, that dwarfs everything. Ted, were you shocked by these numbers, or what's your take on it? Well, you know, it's been an interesting campaign. Um, I tell you, let me just tell you the one thing that did shock me. Um, was this uh, 44% of the people put this as their number one issue, the economy. I've always thought that, but uh, the way the way the crime has been handled, like you said, the way the crime is covered, if you look at every ad that's run by all of them, uh, you know, it overwhelmingly is about crime. 
and uh, especially with what's happening in Chicago and the murders, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I think I said on one of these podcasts that, you know, crime is something that has to be solved, but, but solving and reducing crime doesn't fix Illinois' problems. Illinois' problems are economic and fiscal. So I think that's right that um, they care about that. Um, I guess I am a little bit surprised by the numbers overall, just because, uh, you know, Griffin, Ken Griffin has been supporting Richard Irvin with, with millions of dollars, uh, far more than anybody else uh, in the campaign. I guess it's up to $50 million in total. And so, uh, and, you know, they've been able to blanket the airwaves. They've been able to blanket with, with mailers. I think what we're say, seeing is that some of, the, some of the mailers and some of the responses by, by Irvin aren't, aren't working with the conservative voter base that, that, that exists in Illinois. And uh, so I think that's the big surprise. And, and, and Bailey, Bailey's been a conservative throughout, um, despite the, the mailers that uh, Irvin has sent out about him. He's been a conservative throughout, and, and he, you know, he stood up to, to Pritzker. So in the end, maybe those conservative values or, or conservative efforts are starting to show up. You know, on that spending issue, Ted, uh, people assume that because Bailey would have so much money, uh, excuse me, because Irvin would have so much money, that would make him the leader. But there's a golden rule on this, as I see it. This goes back to what Jim Thompson uh, said. I remember him saying this, and like him or not, he was a superb politician. He said, you don't need to have the most money, but you need to have enough. And that seems to be the case with with Bailey. Uh, I see his ads frequently. Uh, probably not as often as Irvin. And uh, unfortunately, those ads are the most important thing, driving driving opinion. And he seems to have enough money to get his message out. And I think the other contenders don't. I do not see their uh, their ads as frequently. Well, it should, it should be noted that uh, Dick Uline, another billionaire from Illinois, has been supporting Bailey so, and, and with much less money than 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 Griffin has given so far. But like you said, maybe it's enough uh, to get his message out. Um, and, and Sullivan uh, has gotten, I know initially he got some $11 million from some out-of-state uh, donors. And so that gave him some initial ability to, to be in, in the press. And I've seen, I've seen a decent amount of his ads, but maybe, maybe his isn't enough yet. And Ted, just on these matters of most importance, uh, crime is 11%. Economy is 44%. That's four to one. Actually, I said three to one earlier, but it's striking how, how low some of the other matters are. Uh, COVID mitigations, of course, is only 1%. That's probably no surprise. Taxes, 10%. Corruption, 11%. Education, only 2%. Gun issues, 9%. Abortion, only 8%. Um, that certainly will come as a uh, disappointment, I think, to pro-choicers and, and Democrats who, who had hoped to see that be a major issue. Um, we at WirePoints, by the way, don't focus on issues in order of importance like this. Um, as we say, we like to, as Wayne Gretzky said, said um, skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is. And uh, it's our view that uh, education should be and could be made a major topic. People would start talking about it. They don't. Um, God knows we've got the report to show show why it should be the Illinois schools are failing horribly, and pensions are not even on this list. I, either they didn't poll it, or they assumed that it would poll in a very low order. That's the case apparently. But again, we're, we're going to continue to talk about it. Yeah, Mark. You know, economy. Of course, economy can encapsulate lots of things. Um, and of course, right now, if you ask somebody what you're worried about. 
well, when you have gas prices, you know, going over six dollars or, you know, in, in uh, yeah, over six dollars in, in many parts of Illinois, uh, when you have the job market like it's been, when you have the COVID close downs that we've had over time, uh, maybe maybe people don't think about COVID, but they certainly think about jobs. And um, and when you think about kind of the messaging that has come from Lori Lightfoot, that has come from uh, Governor Pritzker, you know, they've been trying to run the economy on on equity and, uh, you know, kind of a, a generally a, quote, woke agenda. And and perhaps maybe, I don't know, I, I, it depends on how, how these how this is going to be fought out. But, you know, one of the clear things for me is that you can't run an economy on an equity and a DEI, the diversity, equity and inclusion agenda. Um, it's got to be the free enterprise. It's got to be merit. It's got to be competence. And so um, if 44 percent is the number that people care about on the economy, then you have to unabashedly oppose the equity movement and, and the BLM uh, that's overtaken schools and governments and budgets and and um, run on one where you're going to actually grow the economy, make it inviting for people to stay in Illinois, make it inviting for companies to move here. Because um, if you don't, uh, they'll keep fleeing. And we'll talk about that in our next point. And it's, you know, it's the same thing, like you said, pensions didn't show up in there, but you know, pensions are a big part of the economy. Uh, if you look at Illinois, we we spend the most of our budget across the country on pension cost, 25%, and it goes to 30% when you add other other retirement costs. So our our budget, our economy, is is overwhelmed by pension costs, and and of course that then ties in one more thing on the economy. That's the power of the public sector unions. Um, they've had so much power that they 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 actually uh, you know like molasses on our economy. So um, and we've seen that in the schools. They have too much power. So all those things together. You know, if you don't reform those three things unabashedly and, and, and support growth in the economy and, and, and the free enterprise system, then we'll just, you know, we'll expect more people to leave and then our economy will continue to do worse. Yeah, that's a really important point about that label economy because people could be dragging in not just uh, uh, pensions, but taxes in general into that uh, and school spending. I mean, that's a $30 billion cost to the to the state you know, when you include local spending on it. So that's a, a major element of our economy here. Yeah, so I, I think that's for me, I, you know, my takeaway from this is, all right, so we get these we get these poll results now. Some people, and I was talking to some people, you're skeptical. Okay, it's the Sun Times, and we know there's a big battle going on between different people who who can influence polling. What polling is done, like you said, um, the Sun Times, you know, claims that the that the pollsters, and they may be very very um, reputable. Um, but I, I think the question is, how does this open up for the last whatever it is, a little over two weeks of campaigning, and and who who stands behind what? Um, but it's clear that. I think a strong message to me, a strong message on the things I just talked about, um, you know, reforming pensions, a, a clear focus on growth on the economy and and, you know, not letting the, the public sector unions overrun our economy. That that's where you have to run. Of course, crime is going to be always important, even if it's as, as it says, only 11 percent. But um, people want more opportunity. They want lower property taxes. They want more jobs. And, and they certainly probably are, are, are angry with this inflation that's hit uh, you know, high since uh, 1981. So we're talking about over over 40 years, 8.6%. Yeah, and I, I, for one, sure, am not making any predictions about uh, about how the elections are going to turn out. This is uh, a very strange year and uh, evolving rapidly. Uh, nothing like it, in my view, in my lifetime. Uh, so count me on the sidelines side in terms of predictions. Um, Ted, the, the uh, 
there's been some confusion about some of the IRS migration numbers that that frankly we we pioneered getting out a very thorough report first on Illinois and nationally, which got a lot of attention and was reprinted. But there's some confusion in these numbers, unfortunately, um, that, uh, you know, particularly when you start talking about how much income people on net took out with them when they left. We're talking about taxpayers and their dependents now. That's a hard count. It comes straight from the IRS. And uh, so you put on another piece, try to put it in plain English. Why don't you give it a shot about what those numbers are and what we're talking about here to clear that up and show how significant it is. Yeah, you know, this is wonky stuff, but bear with me. But, you know, basically we, we've been looking at the the numbers from the IRS. And again, just to, to explain to those who, who don't follow, you know, the IRS every year tracks, well, they have your, your um, uh, tax returns. They know where you lived this year. They know where you lived last year. So they can kind of track, did you move from one state to another? They know how many kids you have and, uh, and a wife or whatever. So they know how many dependents. So they know how many people moved from one state to another. And they know how much money you make, what your AGI is. So they're able to, to kind of look at the whole country, look at state by state and see who's winning taxpayers and how much money they're bringing with them and who's losing taxpayers and how much money um, they're, they're taking with them. And so they can do the kind of the net net of the winners and losers of, of these incomes. And uh, at WirePoints, you know, we've been looking at the last 20 years worth of data. And um, I, I'm sure Illinois was losing people and money before that, but uh, we've been net losers every single year since 2000, every single year. Uh, and, and so let's talk about the money a little bit, because uh, when the money leaves, we can't tax it. We, you know, we lose part of our tax base. It's gone. And, you know, if it goes to Florida, well, then Florida just picked up that tax, that, that tax base. And so let, let's look at this. In, in 2000, the year 2000, Illinois couldn't tax $2 billion because on a net basis, we lost $2 billion to other states. That was AGI that was gone. Well, you know, not only did we lose that money as, as a taxable amount in 2000, but since those people are gone, we can't tax it in 2001 or 2002 or 2003. All the way to today, we can't tax it. So that money's been gone. Well, then we lost $2.3 billion net in 2001. Well, that money's been gone now for whatever that is, eight, 19 years. And then we lost another $2 billion in 2002, $2 billion in 2003. And I can keep going on and on until 2020, the latest numbers, we lost $8.5 billion in AGI. Uh, that's almost 2% of the, of the state's total AGI we lost in one year. So think about that. We've been accumulating losses. They pile up on top of each other. So in 2020, when you talk about the money we just lost and the money that's been gone for all the previous years beforehand for the last 20 years, it's $67 billion in AGI that we can't tax today that's gone. Put a tax rate on that, you know, take into account exemptions, take into account some of that money's retirement income. And we have lost, and then we've lost nearly $4 billion. Just, we could have had $4 billion more in tax, tax revenues for the state to either lower taxes, to pay for pensions, but we could have $4 billion more. And that's a phenomenal number when you think about it, given, given the struggle that's just, we had. That's just for 2020, though. Is that right, Ted? You got That's correct. Grand total, it's $535 billion, right? Of, of AGI, right, that, that's been missing. Okay. Yeah, so right. $530 billion total income has fled on net canceling out both the um, 
people come in, people go out $535 billion less in income um, over the last 20 years. That's what we've sustained. That's right. And so so we've lost some some at least $25 billion of tax revenues that could have been in the state coffers being used to help out all of the problems we have. Uh, but instead, you know, that $535 billion cumulative amount uh, has hurt us. And, you know, gosh, what would we do right now with an additional $4 billion if we had it in 2020? Now, the skeptics among us would say, well, we'd probably waste it. But, you know, assuming that we had better management and people were staying here um, and we were thriving again, we would be able to lower taxes, pay down the pension debts, all those things. And you have to think about the counter to this. If we lost $535 billion, other states won it. Uh, Florida was the big winner overall over the last 20 years. They've won a cumulative $1.6 trillion in AGI. So think about what that means for their economy, uh, and, you know, their, their entrepreneurship, the economy, investments, everything. They're, they're winning the war for people and all the money that pe people take with them. And we're on the other end. It's impossible to have a great state unless we start keeping our people. Uh, and then, of course, have, having th those monies grow and invest. So that, that's our big struggle. And it kind of ties back to the whole election. Is anybody going to run on a platform where we start to do the things that make us grow again and attract people again? And that's the big question. And t Ted, I would argue that that $535 billion is actually a small part of it because you have to apply a, a multiplier to it. And I know there's some controversy about this. Some people think this multiplier effect is uh, exaggerated, but uh, without question, when somebody gets income, they don't stick it under their mattress. They go spend it and that becomes income for other people and so on down the line. And uh, uh, maybe it's three, maybe it's five as a multiplier. Uh, some people say smaller, but in my view, unquestionably, it's far higher than that 535 billion. Well, you know, and that ties a little bit to, to another point about unemployment rates. So, you know, we're a state that struggles and there's all kinds of problems when you have money fleeing like this and you have people fleeing, it creates a, a dampening effect. We have the 45th worst unemployment rate in the country. So you've got other states that have, you know, they're, they're, they can't find workers. They're down at one and a half percent. You know, Florida's really low um, unemployment rate. Uh, we're with the 45th highest. So, you know, these struggles all multiply and they, they add on, on top of each other. So, you know, if we don't solve this problem, it, it will just continue to get worse. And, and, you know, the compounding effect and the, you know, the kind of it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's a, uh, just a, a bad storm. Speaking of storms, Ted, um, we had a lot of nasty storms over the past two years on Lake Michigan in terms of effect uh, because the lake level was so high. And uh, I've got a piece up and I'd like to talk about the experience with Lake Michigan and more importantly, uh, use it as an illustration for some of the double talk that we hear about global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it. And let me preface this by saying, I'm not a denier of, of uh, global warming. I mean, I get the basic principle that carbon dioxide emissions by man increase the temperature, but I think there's a lot of open questions about to what extent it's contributing to that, to what extent we can control it, whether there are countervailing forces that we don't understand yet, whether the models are accurate and so on. Um, but here's our experience. Um, 
in if you got to get enough memory you go back about 10 years we had record low uh lake levels near record lows it was a major cause for concern many places around lake michigan and all the great lakes they were um there was a real problem with things like uh, canals and docks because there just wasn't enough water in to make them make them work what was the cause al gore told us that the great lakes were drying up because of global warming uh, many people said that dick durbin went to washington asking for federal help to try to address the costs associated with those lower lake levels global warming was it we then had a period of remarkable remarkably stable but low water levels for about five years then it surged and as many of you know this has been headline news uh, over the past few years water levels peaked at again near record levels causing a lot of damage because of the damage to shorelines beaches uh, again, dock facilities erosion uh, uh, ecological damage as well what was the result there i mean what was the cause there global warming we were told um, in fact, uh, not only did Dick Durbin go back to Congress again and blame global warming and ask for more federal money, but Chicago made a big deal out of this. That was the uh, factor that prompted them to issue a climate emergency. Sure as possible. They talked about this as the, the sixth mass extinction, um, calling for all kinds of uh, radical changes to policy here and around the country, uh, including, of course, uh, you know, the war on fossil fuels, eliminate fossil fuel consumption at all costs and anything we can do, uh, particularly for the city, replace uh, uh, fossil fuel consuming vehicles with electrical vehicles, all the rest, divest from anybody having to do with anything from fossil fuels. Um, they were not alone. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, other communities and after the Biden administration took office, the Biden administration, of course, were all over this as well. And a lot of those policies went into effect. Um, it certainly has had at least some small part to do in the high prices of gasoline that we're now facing because the uh, fossil fuel industry was nearly criminalized in the process. But guess what? In the past 12 months, Lake Michigan levels have, have plummeted again. And this is true across the Great Lakes, by the way. It's uh, Lake Huron and Michigan moved together because they're connected. Uh, I've got the chart up of all the lakes, Great Lakes in the uh, uh, in my piece. Actually, you can ignore Lake Ontario. That's a, that's a, actually a controlled level lake because they got dams that where man man controls the level to a large extent. But Lake Superior, same thing. They're now down to near normal. It's a couple inches above normal for uh, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Superior. Uh, not a word about this in the press, except we've got a new explanation coming. The Tribune had an article about this. So what's the explanation? Why is, uh, of course, they, they morph from, from global warming to climate change whenever convenient, which is frustrating as heck because those are actually different topics. But the new theory is that variation, rapid, harsh variations are the new normal because of climate change. So we should expect these radical highs and radical lows more often because of climate change uh, the tribune really didn't cite any of the scientists that that have argued that uh, 
Um, I, there are some, and, and I, I found some of them. Uh, one in particular at the University of Michigan made the case, it made a reasonable, a reasonable plausible case. And again, this is a, a topic where it may well be true. I think that there's more variants now going on. But I don't, it, it's a theory that's unproven. And I don't see any evidence that this is a big deal. The University of Michigan a professor, you can look at his his video and read his paper, his scientific paper that he put out on this, uh, modeled out two scenarios. He, he uses a forward projection rather than looking back at historical data to do this. And he thought that these extreme events would be two or 3% more common than they have been in the past based on forward-looking model. Very difficult to model. These things are, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. You can look at them if you are interested in these things because a lot of the uh, knee-jerk responses about what's going on with the lakes are are false. It's it's much more complicated than you think. Certainly, the the notion that the lake lakes dry up because of hot weather, global warming, isn't true. Uh, gl global warming makes for more rain. The atmosphere churns more quickly. Um, a lot of people say also that ice levels account for much of it. Sort of, you know, because ice levels reduced evaporation for a large part of the year. Sort of, but uh, again, that University of Michigan economist explained why that's uh, very complicated and is subject to countervailing countervailing issues. And uh, other factors like the draw from the lake, as they call it, which is man taking water out of the lake, not a big factor at all. That's really just a, a, a tiny, tiny issue in the the. Uh, the inflow and the outflow, and you have to add up all these things to try to come up with a reasonable prediction. Uh, I'm not trying to assess what's going on with the Lake Michigan. My point here is simply that the this is another example of how the darn uh, arguments about climate warming get changed with the weather. How you know things are ascribed to a consensus of science. That is not true. The Tribune, for example, said all scientists agree that uh, storms are becoming harsher and more frequent. No, that's harshly contested by a lot of people. I don't know what the truth is there, but it's 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 heavily contested. Uh, this new theory about increased variance in lake levels, I'm sure, will be discussed too. There's no there's no consensus on it there. Um, but that you know, Tribune article got big front page coverage. Um, you don't see any discussion about it. And uh, boy, you'd think that after the COVID experience, where I think anybody who followed it has to agree that many of the experts and scientists produced things that were politicized, exaggerated, uh, monetized. They had monetary interest things and basically bastardized science. To think that this doesn't go on in climate, where there's so much money involved in what is truly a, a renewables industrial complex uh, and so heavily politicized, it's the same thing going on on a much larger scale with climate issues. And this, this topic of Lake Michigan, Great Lakes water levels is just another splendid example. Yeah, I, I think it is fascinating. It's, it's, it's so much like covid um, of course, COVID was very short, uh, very intense, where, where the, the, the global warming discussion has been going on for a long time. I think what's fascinating is, like you said, though, that, that uh, 
well, or maybe maybe there is more skepticism these days. I don't know, but there should be more skepticism. And I think that's why you're seeing big institutions being doubted so often, because um, big institutions are trying to manage and own and maintain their messaging. And it's being challenged by lots of people, like a wire points, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's um, pensions, or whether it's weather. So uh, I think a good point and good piece, Mark. Yeah, that 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 time issue respecting COVID is is really the answer because people have at least a year memory. So they say, wait a minute, you told us that the vaccine was going to be 100% effective. Or Dr. Fauci, you told me that masks don't work. Now you're telling us they do. So people got called out on these things and they watched the data change in ways that wasn't predicted. Um, so they got caught. But you know, if you got to remember more than two years or go back, you know, if you go back, by the way, up to the 1970s when uh, global cooling was being blamed for very high Lake Michigan levels. People just don't remember that. So scientists don't don't get held accountable. There's no uh, there's no back testing on any of these theories. Um, so skepticism is exactly the right word. That's what science is supposed to be about. It has to be applied to uh, climate just like anywhere else. You know, Mark, what's also fascinating is is that, um, you know, a lot of people are losing hope about what's going on because so many things are being pushed in our schools and, and COVID and climate, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, leaves us in doubt about what's true and what's not. And, you know, and a lot of people are dying for the facts and wanting to know what the facts are, while, while many other groups ignore the facts. They don't want facts. They actually want to cancel facts. And so maybe we should be heartened a little bit by what's happening in California, because it's giving us at least some message that even even the places where they are, are most progressive, even even places that are taking things to the extreme. And, you know, here we're talking about uh, crime and, and criminal justice, where they're taking to the extreme. Even the people on the on the left are rejecting some of those things. Uh, and that's where we're seeing, um, the, you know, the recall in San Francisco by the uh, of the district attorney there for failing to to do the enforcement part of law. And we're seeing some, uh, some potential moves on in Los Angeles uh, there in the general election there too. So um, partially good news. Maybe we can't jump up and down, but uh, it's certainly uh, good, good news. It, it sure is, Ted. And you know that uh, San Francisco story, Chase Bowden is the name of the prosecutor who got thrown out there. Um, First of all, he's got some interesting Chicago connections. He grew up here, and he's the son of Bill Ayers, who was a you know famous radical in the 1960s. Here, spent a good chunk of his life in jail for um, uh, killing a, a police officer in the course of a bank robbery that was part of his uh, his operation. Um, and his wife, same thing, uh, was uh, was involved in that. Uh, but this guy's a hardcore radical, and uh, even in San Francisco, they threw him out. What I, I I was most optimistic about is I often wonder whether the left, because of what they read and see and watch and because of their their inclination to, as you just described, hit the mute button whenever they hear something they don't want to hear or change channels, um, that even they, they apparently are seeing the news. I mean, they're whether maybe they do watch Fox or Breitbart or something where or or social media where you see the stories about crime shoplifting and all the rest in san francisco um so you know perhaps our fears about the 
uh, tribalization of news are a bit overdone, that, that the uh, broader population is seeing what's going on. And uh, certainly in Chicago, I think uh, the press has done a pretty good job covering, covering crime recently. Um, of course, one person who was speaking about Kim Fox, who is like Bowden, is a, a backed by George Soros, Soros, one of these uh, woke prosecutors who has been very easy on, on criminals. Uh, when John Cass tried to write a, about that, um, there was an effort by yeah. the folks on the news side to get him fired. Um, you know, the, the wokies on the, on the, the news page and then Chicago news guild, that's the union there said, Oh, you're an anti-Semite because George Soros is Jewish and you just hate Jews. I mean, what nonsense, what a, what an ugly display of the cancel culture at its worst. Uh, but now you see headlines all over the country, fortunately talking about these, uh, Soros back prosecutors and they damage damage they've done. Uh, one of the worst, by the way, is right on our border too. Is also in St. Louis. They've got one of them. St. Louis has an even higher crime rate than uh, than Illinois. But there are, I think, fourteen major cities with Soros back prosecutors right now. Well, you know, I we've talked a lot about this pendulum swing, and and sometimes they swing really hard, and sometimes they swing really far. And in a place like Chicago, they're they're swinging. They've been swinging. It's been swinging. Pretty, pretty hard and pretty, pretty far. But in San Fran, maybe you could argue it's gone worse, right? Because you're taking what's been a, a beautiful city. And I remember going there as a kid and it's just amazing. And now to hear, to hear about the, you know, the, the rats and, and the, uh, you know, the, the homelessness, the tents, the, uh, the poop everywhere, you know, using the nice word, it's, it's, it becomes even too much for, for those who are, who are, super, uh, let's say super woke. So it's, it's become, becomes hard for them. And I think we're starting to see the same thing in Chicago and, you know, watching some of these videos of, of crime that happens and, and, and just how it's manifesting itself because they don't, you know, the bad guys don't have to worry. They don't have to worry the way they used to. And so, uh, we've got to hope that, that this message that's being sent by, by California is heard. Now, of course, it doesn't do us any good if, if, if those in Chicago just, you know, kind of roll back, you know, 20 percent and try to act like they're doing something. I think we need, you know, we need full, full change, um, not just in policies, but the people who, who, you know, institute those policies. But um, we'll have to see. But I think I think that there is good news coming out of California. Ted, I'm looking forward uh, to uh, after the primary, we plan on starting to interview major some of the candidates for major office. We'll add video to this podcast. Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll start with the major major office holders and uh, uh, some of them, especially in the incumbents, I, I expect wouldn't uh, <laughs> wouldn't subject themselves to a a lengthy interview here or anywhere else, a lengthy serious interview, um, but uh, others will. And uh, we're going to do that on a, on a we're going to focus on policy and not not politics and the petty stuff that uh, uh, that has dominated the primary. We, we don't endorse candidates, but we sure as heck are willing to uh, go over the policies and reforms that we think are appropriate and ask these candidates uh, what they plan on doing about them. So that'll be part of our our podcast here coming up right after the after the primary later this month. Well, and you can learn a lot by, by what a candidate is willing to answer and not answer and how they answer. So, uh, 
even if they don't want to talk about these things, you can quickly, quickly gauge whether they're comfortable talking about, especially if they're if they're reformers or not. And um, you know, the stuff that you and I have talked about and the stuff I laid out earlier, those are all heavy reform issues. If they don't want to talk about it, you, you get a pretty quick clue that that um, they like the status quo or certainly are not going to change things. Well, on that cheery note, any of less cheery of uh, the uh, Consumer Confidence Index, all-time low was announced today, all-time low. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of folks out there aren't in a very good mood, but keep your heads up. Uh, America's been through worse things than this, and uh, we'll all do whatever we can, in whatever small way we can, to try to move the needle. We'll talk to you next time on the Dialogue by Wire Points. Thank you.